Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to this 91st episode of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm Andrea Schwartz, along with my co-host, Father Steve Macias. Hey there, Andrea. Great to be with you again. Well, we're in uh, interesting times, and the question that's posed is, what would be so bad as a result of all the stuff that's happened with the uh, sheltering in place and business closing? What would be so bad if just everybody's debts were forgiven? Why don't we just declare it? You know, everybody's debts are off the books. Yeah, it's it's not a new concept, uh, this idea of defaulting on our debts or just forgiving large swaths of debts, especially right now when uh, the entire workforce is coming to a halt for non-essentials, even here in California. And there's this huge spike in unemployment. And some people even go to uh, the Old Testament and they look at the laws of Jubilee and uh, they say, look, even in the Bible, they understood that there are some times when it's time to forgive debts. And often what's really strange about these conversations is this is the one of those strange situations where suddenly the Old Testament becomes applicable. Uh, we've seen a lot of that in the last few weeks. Uh, when a crisis hits, it's so strange how people scramble for answers and they're willing to just grab whatever. And so suddenly when a disease hits, okay, finally, we'll return to God and ask him to heal us, right? It's now it's time to turn to prayer. Or now that we're in quarantine, maybe the Bible has something to say about quarantine. Or now that we're in debt, maybe the Bible has something to say. It's so sad that our culture goes to God as the last resort instead of going to him first and say, you know, how could we keep ourselves from getting in this position? And I think the conversation on debt forgiveness is going to say similar things that there's really no Band-Aid that you can give after the fact, uh, but the Bible provides principles to keep this from happening again. So, I mean, that's like, okay, so everybody should have been smarter and shouldn't have been in this position and we should have been more faithful. But just hand-picking, cherry-picking things out of the Bible, out of context, isn't a remedy either. So the whole idea of the Jubilee was very much tied into the idea of the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest. So the pattern that God ordained for people is resting one day in seven, resting one year in seven, and then the Jubilee would be the seven sevens, and mm -hmm. you would actually have two years of Sabbath. Yes. So to just pull out, and we'll explain it, you know, in terms of that, but that's the economic context in which God talks about how people should live. Right. And uh, it's a very much a picture of Jesus. Uh, in fact, the, the year that Christ was crucified is, is related to the Jubilee year. Uh, but what's often maligned or missed there in Leviticus chapter 25, where the, the Jubilee is introduced by Moses, is that the Jubilee is not what we're discussing here today, uh, this giant restructuring of debt or, or forgiveness of corporate or government debt. Uh, 
a lot of people will attempt to take the idea of the Jubilee and try to reinterpret it in some type of like Christian socialism, right? That somehow, and there was books put out in the 80s by men like Ron Sider, who, who talked about how uh, the real goal should be at this time is to pull all of our assets in the principle of the Jubilee and then redistribute to people who are in need. And in fact, just today, uh, a large multi-trillion dollar stimulus or aid or rescue package, whatever you want to call it, was passed by the House where they're going to redistribute a large chunk of government money, which was collected through taxes, to folks affected by the coronavirus. And some people would, would equate these type of ideas that, that somehow the forgiveness of debt or the redistribution of, of money by a government is what the Jubilee is talking about. And I don't think that they directly comport with each other, but there's also, as you mentioned, some other principles here that are missing uh, for this to be directly applicable to the idea of Jubilee. And specifically that idea of following or the year of rest. And uh, no one is proposing to take a break or a two year break or a one month break from Sabbath in our work in order to us to exercise the Jubilee. We just want the benefits of not having our debts anymore. So I think that's very interesting. Right. And the whole idea of the forgiving of debts had to do with the primary foundational principle of not being in debt in the first place. And so um, the Bible is clear. The borrower is a slave to the lender. And yet, as you pointed out, this stimulus package, this bailout, whatever you want to call it, since government doesn't produce anything, since government just collects money, really what's happening here is either they're going to print more money and our currency will be even more inflated, or they're just going to eventually tax people so that everybody will be equally miserable as opposed to those who have been industrious, let's say, and saved might find that the things they've saved have now become nationalized. Sure. And I mean, that's a, a very political or economic discussion. Uh, but if you just go back to the idea of the Jubilee and the intention of it, uh, there's a couple of layers that I think people should really take to heart in how they run their personal life. Uh, often, the Old Testament is just not understood uh, in its context and how it can apply to our life today. And there's this huge gap of behavior, especially in the last 50 years, compared to how Christians typically understood how the Bible applied to their lives. So if you go online today and you look at consumer debt or mortgage debt or credit card, auto, you know, student loans, you know, the average American is in over $100,000 of debt. Now, the average American's uh, salary is about a third of that. So the average American is making $45,000 a year and is currently three times that amount in debt, whether it's through student loans or autos or whatever consumer good they happen to buy. So there, there is a sense that our modern culture, the average person is a slave to some type of lender. And the temptation is to ask for a rescue and to look for anything that might relieve us of this debt. And so then they look to Old Testament debt forgiveness and think, well, maybe here's my way out. But it doesn't directly translate because what happens in the principle of Jubilee is that if you're in the first year of Jubilee or the, the, the first year of the Sabbath cycle, you know, this is the year after the last Jubilee, uh, the property that your family 
had been given in the land of Canaan. You know, after Joshua comes into the land, they distribute the the various millions of acres of the promised land amongst the tribes and amongst the families. And it was promised to them as an inheritance. And so for that seven years, year one, it's worth X amount of dollars because the crops grown there, the uh, livestock that roams there has a certain value. But every year, so year number two, there's less time remaining on that particular debt calendar, right? So you only have five years of good production and then the next year, four years. And so uh, people who were not productive or who, who were doing very poorly uh, could then lease out their land uh, to people who could farm it or lease out their land to people who could uh, raise stock on it or do some type of trade on it. And they could collect a fee for that. And so they were able to use the property that they were given inside the principle of the Jubilee as a way to uh, you know, make things work. And then right there on the last year, the property would be worth the least. And uh, then after that time was over, the, the thing would restart. Now, the difference is we take out loans for houses that are 50-year mortgages, right? Nobody did that in the land of Canaan. They said in seven years, these debts are all going to be erased. So they didn't take eight-year debts. They, they took the debts for the time that they were allowed. And so while it's an interesting concept, uh, we're not really fitting the, the biblical constraint of don't carry debts for this long. Instead, we're trying to go against our word and forgive debts that really should never have been made in the first place. Dr. Rushton, talks about this in other places, that our modern idea of taking out mortgages is contrary to really the biblical standard that years ago, uh, not even years and years ago, but within the last century, the idea of taking a loan for 20, 30 years on your home was, was very foolish, and that men and women would have not expected to carry that kind of debt. That would have been considered reckless. And so the Jubilee principle is a constraining principle, not one of, you know, recklessness. And what's wrong with any stimulus or sending everybody a check? It doesn't handle the debt mentality. Sadly, in today's world, if you're somebody who has paid as you go, if you save for the car you want, if you save for the house you want or whatever it is, and you don't put things on credit, it's almost like you don't exist and you're deemed a bad credit risk. Whereas somebody who gets lots of the time and spends lots of um, purchasing things by means of debt, somehow or other is considered a better risk in terms of lending the money. Yeah, I mean, people are familiar with, with Dave Ramsey and uh, his kind of anti-credit principles. I, I don't think that those are hard and fast rules that debt is always uh, a bad thing that can be used for growing businesses and things like that. Uh, but as a general principle, there's a danger uh, in not being responsible with debt. And what's happened in our culture is we have uncoupled the responsibility with debt with the responsibility to repay it. And so, so much to the extreme that we have now introduced state subsidies to mitigate the risk of debt. So the great example of this, and this has been discussed at length with people like uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, when they talk about uh, relieving people of college debt, 
right? They want to do debt forgiveness for student loans. Well, on the start of this, we have an entire generation who are paying inflated prices for a piece of paper that doesn't really get them what they were promised it would get them. You know, the degree isn't really worth the investment. But there's also this state intervention in between where the state is offering lower rate uh, loans, state subsidized loans that mitigate the risk for the borrower. So a student who is not really credit worthy, uh, who cannot be trusted to pay back their debt, is given more debt than they than they can handle, than they need, than is responsible. And then the state subsidizes the risk uh, and really dilutes the entire pool. Now, you brought up something that's really important in this discussion, is that this type of uh, behavior really punishes the productive folks. People who save their dollars, they put their dollar bills between their mattresses, they put their savings in their savings accounts, they put their 401k. Uh, not only is it unfair to these people to subsidize the bad, the bad characters, but it actually devalues their money. When the government next week is going to print out $2 trillion, it's not so much that they're coming up with new resources that somehow bail people out. What they're going to do is what happens in every socialist country is they're devaluing the current currency. And so the cost of goods will inflate. Uh, this rate of inflation is essentially a tax on those who have dollars. So tomorrow, once the, the Fed announces that they're going to produce this new trillion dollar uh, handout, every dollar in your wallet, in your bank account, in your 401k is going to be worth less because of it. So you're going to be taxed because new currency has been introduced into the government. So rather than helping people, most people will be negatively or adversely affected. Money is being extracted from you through taxes and through inflation, destroying your financial wealth because the government wants to help you. And an interesting aspect to those Christians who say, well, as you referenced that author, that what we should do is we should take our money and we should help those who don't have as much as we do. They've lost the idea of what the tithe was supposed to accomplish. Mm. Debts were basically the restriction of six years was a restriction on those who lent and those who borrowed. Because at the end of six years, the lender was going to have to forgive a debt if it still remained. And so people would make their choices as to who and how they would lend money based on that. But because of the principle of the tithe, because of the first tithe and the second tithe and the third tithe that the Bible clearly lays out, the social financing for the education or for those who were widowed or those who were um, unable to work or disabled, these were provided. So you have to wonder what's going to happen now with a, uh, a Christian populace that probably wasn't really tithing anyway and certainly relying on government assistance for those who didn't have homes or those who you know were suddenly widowed or orphaned that i wonder if people are going to continue to pay their tithes and for those who haven't done so to start paying tithes and properly right. paying their tithes well and you have to wonder um in in this human nature uh, we, we know people are basically evil and and they're going to take advantage of whatever they can and um, that's why we have to constrain and restrain our government and its you know, ability to control our finances and whatnot. But 
consider what do you think is the behavior that's going to happen following the forgiveness of debts? And is that the same behavior that God was trying to do with the Jubilee? If I told you today, you know that $50,000 loan you have on your brand new Ford pickup truck? Forgiven. Don't worry about paying it. You keep the truck. We're going to forgive your debt. Uh, that person is still the same person they were yesterday. Maybe they take their, their, their debt and now they have you know, extra money. Or maybe they'll just continue to rack up more debt. You know, the average American carrying $137,000 worth of debt, you're going to tell me that now they're going to be responsible? <laughs> so uh, if that's the average, then most Americans are carrying more than that kind of debt. This is going to be an excuse to make the problem worse. It's not going to be a call to responsibility. Now, if you look at the Jubilee principle inside the scripture, it's not one of relieving the poor. It wasn't meant to uh, provide uh, socialist utopia, there was a, an actual alternative goal to the Jubilee in the Old Testament. So again, the story is Joshua brings the people into the promised land, they divide up the land, but there is an expectation that these millions of people who are now in the promised land are going to go beyond the promised land. And so the very beginning here, when they, they divide up the land, is that the blessing of God will come to those who take dominion outside of the promised land. So Abraham, his promise is that the promise would go to all the corners of the world. And yet the Jubilee is only applied here in the land of Canaan with the 12 tribes, with this particular private property. So it, it implicitly gives a motivation for the Jews of, you know, uh, of this Mosaic period to build up wealth to go beyond the boundaries of the ancient you know, citadels. And what that was intending to do was to take the hope of God's law to the four corners of the world. Now, immediately you see that the people under Joshua don't do this. They don't take dominion in the way that Moses and Joshua had expected them to do using the principles of the Jubilee. Instead, what happens is they ignore these principles and they squander the stewardship of God's resources, even inside the kingdom of Israel. And I think that's really what we're doing here by focusing inwardly on debt relief or debt forgiveness. Instead of encouraging people to be productive, we're really rewarding those and incentivizing people to be lazy and unproductive. We're rewarding those who have been financially bad stewards by encouraging their behavior and taking away the consequences. And this is seen most significantly at the government level. A default, you know, in California, there was a, a major debt default, default in the 1840s that was restructuring. And there were actual implications. Corporations raised the cost of borrowing money to the state of California. And you can see that when folks have to have forgiveness of debt, it changes their credit worthiness, their ability to borrow. And that could be good. A year of Jubilee could be good if in the future, government got out of situations where it was lending and borrowing, right? We could imagine a system where you forgave student debts if the federal government decided to get out of federal debt programs. You can imagine a situation where you could forgive large swaths of the government, a jubilee-type principle, if in exchange there were now controls of the free market put in place of government you know, encroachment in these areas. But what instead is happening is these forgiveness programs are used as an excuse to exacerbate the current issues. 
instead of being a solution, the Jubilee is invoked here to make the problem worse. And I think Christians uh, need to pay attention to how they're being taken advantage of uh, for just a small, small sum of money. You talk about the irresponsibility of people. I have heard there are those who, when their businesses or wherever they worked closed, were encouraged to apply for unemployment because they didn't know. And there was actually some talk that if you actually somehow or other managed to get this virus, you would end up with more money if you then could go on disability. And so an unprincipled people will use unprincipled means to get ahead. I I saw pictures of one uh, grocery store where the same woman comes in every single day with a different thing on, but they figured out it was she somehow or other buying up all various stuff. So it's not like people in a crisis suddenly become sinless. (laughs) What you see is what's in people's hearts emerge. And hopefully as people go into the scripture and look on things like, okay, have I been offending God by living this debtful lifestyle and that I have to do the hard work of paying off my debts rather than hoping that somebody just says, hey, you don't have to pay them. And this is seen in a micro and macro scale. Uh, I hope that this isn't taken to be critical because I don't mean it that way. But the Lord calls us to observe a jubilee every seven days, right? A Sabbath every seven days. And I've talked to so many Christians as a pastor who say, I can't take Sunday off because I need to work. And they refuse to give God that day. And I'll be very frank with them. And I'll say, as long as you refuse to give the God the Sabbath, then you will have to continue to work. <laughs> because the Lord is going to say and demand that his law be obeyed. He did this to Israel. When they refused to, to follow the land, when they refused to honor his Sabbath, when they refused to keep his word, then he did give them the curse of the land. Um, But what's often missing in discussions about the Jubilee is what you'd mentioned at the very top top of this discussion is that they would take a whole year off. That means a year of no farming, a year of no production, uh, and that would be a Sabbath year. We are in, in here in California, a somewhat Sabbath month, right? And people are devastated. What does it say about us that our entire culture lives so close to poverty that a week or two weeks or a month can completely destroy your financial system? It means that you're living not based on sound financial principles, but on a house of sand. And that's really what the Lord was warning about when he said that the debtor is a slave to to their debt, because he wants us to escape that type of situation. He wants us to be more than conquerors, to take dominion, to establish firmly this idea that we are working for a purpose and that the Sabbath is not a punishment, but it's a preparation. So take it to the the year of Jubilee, two years of Sabbath. Who could survive two years of Sabbath? But that was the principle. The Lord said, be ready because there are going to be two years where you're going to be unproductive. And so what do you have to do now to make sure when the unproductive years are demanded upon you that you're ready? And so, so many Christians don't think that way. They think, well, eventually, maybe it'll come or I'll figure it out instead of planning. Uh, 
The Lord gives us the book of Proverbs and says, consider the ant. This is really what the Lord is preparing us for, that we would be the people in times of crisis who said, we knew a crisis was coming and we were prepared. And that's really the power of the gospel in times of, of crisis like this, is that the wisdom of the scripture alleviates us from the foolishness and the dependence on the world because we went to God for wisdom. So a couple of comments on what you said, because you said um, you covered a lot of ground there. When they gave the land a rest, remember, this was a society that was an agrarian society. That meant that they didn't till the land. They didn't plant. But it didn't mean that they sat around and did nothing. They might repair their homes. They might fix whatever they needed to fix. In other words, craft some more tools or whatever it was. It clearly was a demonstration on recognizing that God is the one who provides the increase. God is the one who sustains us. So to take one day off in seven, to take one year off in seven, to take two years at the end of a jubilee, clearly identifies the people who trust in God for their sustenance. So As a farmer, you wouldn't use up all your seed. You would save some seed because you knew you'd have to plant that first year and you'd have to have enough in your storehouse in order to get through. And so the whole system, which people don't understand because too many have been told, pay no attention to the first two thirds of the book that you carry around with you when you go to church, (laughs) was also a system for the person who didn't make wise choices or through circumstances seemingly beyond his control, he got into a situation of debt. And that's what biblical slavery was all about. By and large, it was you had to become an indentured servant, a bond servant, which is really very similar to the word slavery. And that's why slavery as most people understand it isn't the same as biblical slavery that I can't pay off my debt. And so somebody comes along and says, okay, I need somebody to work my fields. And so he pays the person who was owed the money. That person comes and works for him, but it's only for a period of this six years. And then the debt has to be forgiven. In other words, he then goes free. But interestingly, in the biblical provision, there is a bond that then develops between the person who came into bond service and the person he worked for. And the person he worked for actually ends up capitalizing him as he goes out as a free man so that he's not in that situation again. So you see that God's way is so much better than the impersonal banker who will turn people over to collections if they can't pay their debt, we've lost the idea of restitution. We've lost the idea of basically having a two-way provision so that bad decisions don't often have to be lifetime bad decisions. That's right. And it really ties in with what you said about the tithe. Uh, Israel was uh, typologically a type of the church And so what the Jubilee represented for the 12 tribes uh, was a type of the church and tithing agency so that the poor would always be protected, right? So the poor are always protected by the the, uh, Jubilee system inside the boundaries of Israel. But those who they dispossessed, right? So the Canaanites, the Jebusites, all these folks 
who were pushed out of the land, uh, the Lord had no concern for their well-being. He didn't forgive them their debts. He didn't. And the same thing is kind of true uh, when we consider today. Uh, too many of us talk about you know, our care for the poor, uh, but we don't function in this kind of typological parallel. We're, we're really concerned about the poor, those who are, are bond servants, those who are functionally slaves to Capital One or Chase or J.P. Morgan, right? These, these folks, we want to talk about protecting them. But in the Jubilee equation, these are the, the Jebusites, right? The solution is not to create a, a third-party institution for the, those outside of Canaan that gives them resources, but rather to invite them under the protection of Israel to come into the covenant body. So today, if we recognize the, the church primarily as a tithing agency and that we as the church have the responsibility to be this new Israel, to care for the poor, to teach them, to recognize them, then the state and its roles will be greatly uh, reduced and the impact it has on our culture will be significantly mitigated. But for us, we are we are thinking as though we're going to go rescue the world apart from God's blessing or help. Right. You go back to the Babylonian captivity, which most people will be somewhat familiar with in church circles. And as we mentioned previously, part of the reason given for 70 years outside of their land and in Babylonia had to do with their failure to observe their Sabbaths. And it's important when you go to the books of Ezra and you go to the books of Nehemiah, these are the folks that came back afterwards and they were they were aware of the fact that their temple, this glorious temple that you know that Solomon had built, has been destroyed. And when they do rebuild it, it's certainly not the same caliber as before. So there's this reminder right in Scripture that says it can happen to you too, folks. You know, America um, has been blessed for many, many years, and a lot of it had to do with the Christian capital that it was founded upon. But, you know, the same thing happens when you run out of money in your bank account and you start running a deficit. I believe that the church worldwide has to wake up to the fact that you don't violate God's commandments willy-nilly and expect you'll get a bailout. The captivity was not a bailout. It was a judgment. And yes, many wonderful things happened. And we, we saw people like Daniel and his three friends and, and Esther and, we, and Nehemiah. These are all people who maintain faithfulness. But we have to know what faithfulness is in order to maintain it. Yes. And, and Dr. Rushtuni, when talking about the Jubilee and really the blessing of God's order, says that with faithfulness comes really the standards of God. Um, so we can't expect the blessing of God without coming into God's definition of what faithfulness is. Because we've separated the spirituality of the gospel from the physical reality of gospel, we think that the Bible doesn't have solutions for our physical problems. Yet the Jubilee here says God cares about your land, your farm, your ranch, that the freedom of the Bible is not just spiritual or not just theological. It really applies to physical land. And so Christians should use this as a reminder to say, 
you know, the word of God applies even here in how I run my job, run my business, you know, carry my debt. The Jubilee is a reminder that God speaks to this. And then the other part of that, which I think is really missing, is we are so fascinated as a culture with individual freedom. But the rule of Jubilee is not about the individual, right? It's not about individual debt forgiveness. Everybody's sent back to their ancestral land. There's a connection in the idea of the Jubilee to God's order of the family. So what God uses the Jubilee to remind us of is the importance of inheritance, the importance of building up good, strong Christian families and family businesses and carrying that responsibility from parents to children to grandchildren. The Jubilee is God's constant reminder that God's way of doing things is the recipe for success. And when you go along focusing on your own individual uh, projects and freedoms and it doesn't work out, God's going to use his order to refocus our purposes on the family, on the physical world, on the call of dominion through those means. I'm glad you brought that up because there is a very, very famous or well-known episode in the Old Testament that probably has some people scratching their heads. When King Ahab wanted this guy Naboth's vineyard, chances are he offered him a pretty penny for it. But Naboth said, no, I can't do that. This doesn't just belong to me as an individual. This belongs to my family and I can't sell it. And no doubt Ahab tried to be very persuasive and knew the law enough to know that he couldn't just force him. Well, Jezebel, who didn't have a lot of compunction on following the law, decided she was going to get for her husband what he wanted, and he managed to pout so that um, it would be very obvious to her he didn't get what he wanted. And so she constructed a situation where Naboth had people falsely accusing him of things. He was put to death and they took his land. And how many people even understand that it had to do with this whole Sabbath principle of I'm not free to give you what belongs to my family. Right. And then how many people pay attention to really that when God says, don't move the boundaries, respect the ancestral landmarks, all these type of things, that it's not just humans that are called to respect those boundaries, but that the God who maintains history sends blessings and curses based on how well we maintain those standards. And so we cannot get away from faithfulness to God and expect good things to happen in this world. Our faithfulness to biblical principles is a measure of our success. The book of Proverbs When it says, son, this is how you're going to be wise. This is how you're going to be prosperous. This is how you're going to be healthy and happy. The Lord is not just saying that here's one way to do it. Here is the way. (laughs) There's through Jesus and the wisdom of the scripture. There is one way. And if you follow some other way, it's not so much a rescue, but a call back to, okay, now you got to do it right. Right. Well, Dr. Rush Juni wrote a book called Tithing and Dominion, and he used to joke how it was one of his least popular books because people didn't want to read about tithing and dominion. And he also spent a fair amount of time in the institutes, um, all the volumes, volumes one, two, and three, discussing the Sabbath and the Jubilee and debts. 
And he really pointed to the fact that he was just scratching the surface, that there was more work to be done. So some might say, okay, when these passages of scripture were written, we didn't have social media, we didn't have telecommuting, we didn't have the cloud, we didn't have all this technology. But how foolish we are if we think that the principles that are laid out in scripture don't apply to today. It will leave us very unprepared for God's course corrections, God's judgment, if we don't know when we are being disobedient to his word. That's right. Well, and I think Christians need to, when they hear the idea of of tithing, uh, they get very very scarcity minded, but you know, how am I going to make it work if I give 10% or 15% or 20% of my income to the church? And they begin to think of the world as this closed system. And what's really remarkable in our conversations today is politicians throw out numbers like billions and, and even this week, trillions of dollars that are going to di- different programs. A hundred years ago, when the federal uh, income tax was passed, you know, there were promises made that it would never exceed one to two percent of your income, and that if there was two percent, that there would be riots in the streets if the federal government was taking two percent of your income. Well, now with progressive taxation, you know millionaires are paying sixty percent of their income in in taxation. And what has been the result of that? Now, we we can look at a lot of negative in that, but the other part of that is to say that even when the limited resources that we have are heavily taxed man has been able to create and grow the resources of creation and so stewardship and tithing and dominion is not about looking at this small sliver of god's pie and saying how are we going to make it all work with what we have now but rather recognizing that when we put our hands to the plow just as though god causes that seed to sprout up in the field the same thing is happening with our financial well-being now imagine if the conversation was not How is Trump going to get the trillion dollars into local businesses? Imagine if it was, how can First Baptist of Nashville or how can the Presbyterian Church in Greenville, if you had $2 trillion, what would would your recovery plan look like for your local economy? Or even if it wasn't the church, what if it was a a local hospital? If the tithing agency of the medical field or, or whatever tithing agency you're a part of, if you had that kind of income, what would you do? And the problem is we've been thinking so much dependently on the state providing those solutions that we've abdicated huge swaths of what the Bible has assigned for your dominion. Now, the government got that money uh, through forced taxation, but that means that that money was there to take. Our job as Christians is to make the persuasive case that God's way, uh, the dominion-oriented perspective of Christian reconstruction, is the way of success and victory. And when people see what Christian Reconstruction can do, as it's done for the last 2,000 years, they're not going to trust in the state. They're going to trust in God's word. And knowing that, we should be expecting that when all of these humanistic schemes and functions fail, that it's going to be the church's responsibility to now figure out, if we had $2 trillion in a stimulus package, how would we build the Christian culture of tomorrow? And stop thinking of, well, our church budget is only this, and what could we possibly do? Get rid of that thinking and say, this is the 
year, the generation, the millennium of our Lord's Jubilee. He has come to set the captives free. We come with God's word, and therefore we will bring the victorious and, and prosperity gospel onto this world. And in closing, because we're coming to the end of our time, it's important to look at the tithe as God's tax. And too many people, because their taxes are removed from their paycheck, and they don't get to do it voluntarily. That's why we have a confiscatory tax system, because whoever you work for is obligated to have an employee who makes sure that the local government, the state government, and the federal government gets their cut. And if they don't have that employee there doing it, they're not going to be able to be in business. God's tax, the tithe, he doesn't come and, you know, suck it out of your bank account or under the, 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 you know, the gold or silver that you have in reserves. He expects you to pay it. And one of the principles of scripture is you pay God first. And some people will say, well, if I pay God first, then I don't have enough money for other things. Better to pay God first and to have those funds go for the things that the tithe was supposed to cover health, education, welfare. Gee, aren't we talking about what the civil government has appropriated? Health, education, and welfare. This is part of the judgment on the people of God, the church, the new Israel of God, who hasn't taken its responsibilities seriously. And one thing we know about our God, he is not afraid to get our attention. Mm. Amen. Well, as Rashtuni would say, when the state plays God, freedom disappears. And so return the, these institutions back to God and freedom will increase. And that's our call here to take dominion and to restore the biblical order. All right. Thanks a lot, Steve, for your time. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. As always, if you would like to communicate with us about any subject we've talked about or things that you would like us to talk about, out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how to get a hold of us. And we hope that you share our podcast with other people who you think might be interested. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.